0: Of John chapter 13. Uh, just as a follow up to the announcements, uh, the youth group is also going to that debate at Holy Cross, and we'll provide transportation from the church, uh, but we'll need everyone to be here at 6 p.m. Uh, unless you are taking your kids to that debate. Um, we will meet here and provide transportation, so uh, we're looking forward to that as well. Uh, John chapter 13. We are starting the sermons early this morning, so get your thinking caps on and let's prepare ourselves to study the Word. In John chapter 20, John gives us an excellent comment at the end of his book. And uh, the youth group went through the Gospel of John years ago, and this verse in John chapter 20 was the most helpful verse in the entire book. And there, John says, these are written talking about the things that he had written, specifically focusing on the works of Christ. He said, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It is always helpful to understand why an author wrote a book. And John tells us explicitly why he did. And he wants us to know that Jesus is God. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Savior. That life comes by believing in His name. And so, everything that John wrote was for that purpose. So when we come to John 13, we need to have that in mind. A man does not do the things that are talked about in this chapter. The glory of Christ is on display in this chapter. His perfections are on display. We are doing this sermon series because we are a few weeks away from Good Friday. We are a few weeks away from Easter. And so we are doing this series to focus on the person of Christ, to gaze upon Him, to love Him, and to see what He did on our behalf. And so we are here in John chapter 13, seeing one of the great events that was very Close to the cross. One of the amazing things that Christ did. So let's read in John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, just a side comment, this is Passover week. This is very close to the cross. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. Verse 12, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray this morning as we look at these verses. Father, it is good to be here, it is good to be focusing on Christ, to be gazing upon him, to be just thinking upon our Savior. We pray that You would help us this morning to do that. We are, Father, in need of Your Spirit in everything. We need to have Your Spirit working in our minds and in our hearts that we can understand and apply and learn and love our Savior through this passage. So, Father, we ask that You would cause that in us this morning. Father, for anyone who doesn't know You, we pray that You would cause them to gaze upon Christ and see the Savior that they need. In His name we pray. Amen. There's certainly a lot of application we can pull out of this passage, but I want to focus this morning on Christ, to gaze upon Him, for that is why we are here and as we head towards Easter. So, first point is Jesus' knowledge. What did Jesus know at the beginning of this event that we read about in John 13? And the passage clearly tells us what He knew. He knew first that His hour had come, He knew that the cross was near. He was going to leave this world and return to the Father. That sounds like such a uh, easy thing to do. It sounds like he is his flight is approaching, right? He's going to leave this area and, and go somewhere else. But we know what this meant. His hour coming, him leaving this world, meant the most horrific pain and agony and spiritual torment that any human being has ever experienced. Jesus knew this. He knew that Judas was ready to betray him. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And he knew that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so if you put all of this together, you understand the depth of Jesus' knowledge. You understand how, how weighty and vast the concepts that he was considering and that he knew in his mind. When you think about the emotion that would have come along with this, the extreme difficulty to which he was headed, the pain the spiritual agony we get a picture of it when he leaves this upper room and he goes to the garden of Gethsemane and he starts to show some of that agony and that emotion he knew all of that in this moment at the supper he also knows the joy and the glory that awaits on the other side right Hebrews 12 says that for the joy that was set before him he endured the cross right he knew what was on the other side and the great glorious joy of being reunited with his Father, of being out of the pain of this sinful world. In that moment, with all of that knowledge, he thinks of his disciples. He thinks of his disciples. There's, there's so much coming and they're going to be alone. There's so much they're, they're not going to understand. And so he cares for them. But I suggest we would never do this, given given the weight of what is about to happen, given the glory that is about to be restored. But He loves them to the end. Not, Not to the end of His love, not to the end of His days, but to the utmost is the idea here. He loves them to the utmost. He knew Peter would misunderstand. He knew that three of His disciples would sleep while He prayed and agonized. He knew Peter would deny Him, that Thomas would doubt. He knew that all would forsake Him. Yet He loved them unto the end. And this is the same with us. As we gaze upon our Savior in this passage, we need to also see that this love is not just for His disciples in that moment. We are the objects of His love. His love that goes to the utmost. He loves us to the end of our miserable failures, to the end of our wanderings and backslidings, to the end of our unworthiness, and to the end of our deep need. He loves us that much and to that extent. In Philippians 2, it talks about Christ humbling Himself. It says that though He was in the form of God, He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to but He emptied Himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? The step down from, from God to man was an infinite step. And being found as a man, Jesus did not even take upon Himself a glory that would be rightly due Him. He, even as a man, humbled Himself beneath those around him. And that is what he starts to do here. His willingness to go to the ultimate end of of humility, of humiliation, means that there was no task, no humbling situation during his life that he would shy away from because of pride. There are tasks that we would consider beneath us. Jesus did those tasks. And this is what he does now. Knowing everything that he knows, knowing who he is, he humbles himself, like it says in Philippians 2, and he takes action. So first we have Jesus' knowledge, and now we have Jesus' action. What he does. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, tied a towel around his waist. You can, you can see the scene as John describes it. And John was there and he watched this. And you can imagine the reaction of the disciples as they see Jesus do this. He's pouring water into a basin. And I'm sure they would have recognized it as a traditional foot-washing basin. And maybe they're expecting a parable or some sort of different event other than foot-washing because that is not one thing they would expect. They knew what it appeared he was doing. But in order for us to understand the drama of this moment, we have to understand that they did not expect him to actually do what it looked like he was doing. This was a task reserved for the lowest of servants. Jewish slaves were not given this task because they were considered too valuable for this task, and they were slaves. This would have went to the Gentile slave. This would have went to the lowest person you could find to do this. You sometimes would find a pupil of, say, a rabbi doing this task. But that is the closest we can come to this setting. It would have made some sense for one of the disciples to do this for Jesus. For one of the disciples to do it for the other disciples would have been extremely rare and a sign of great love. And so for Jesus to start to pour water in the basin and to prepare the towel and to bring that basin over to the first disciple and set it down, you don't continue with dinner. You don't keep chatting as you see this happening. This is a shocking, astounding moment. He's doing what none of them even considered doing. When you think about them arriving at this room for dinner, it would have been common practice for people at dinner to have their feet washed, right? This was a culture where you walked around in in sandals, in in an environment that was dirty, that was dusty, that was filthy. Um, Not only was there dirt and dust, but there would have been dung and and inhuman feces in the streets. So washing your feet was something that was very helpful. And they all arrived and they all were having dinner and all of them had dirty feet. Why? Because there was not a servant low enough to do the task of washing their feet. And none of them volunteered because, well, you just don't don't put yourself in that position. So Jesus steps up and takes on this task. And their sense of things is shattered in this moment as they watch him. And I can only imagine the tension and the drama in the room as they see him start to do this. This is made all the more acute when we realize that He is the Son of God. He knit all of them together in their mother's wombs. He created each and every one of these men. And He is stooping to wash their feet. Judas is in the room. Judas is sitting at the table or reclining at the table. And Jesus goes to Judas and does the same thing that he does for the rest of them. He washes the feet of Judas. And then Judas goes out and betrays him, leading to his death. This is an incredible moment of humility and love and sacrifice on the part of our Savior. And you can almost feel the the tension build as he makes his way around the room. And you know, you know who's going to break the silence. It's, it's his pattern in the Gospels. But you can almost feel just the, the anguish of Peter as he watches Jesus come around this room. And, and Peter, is just, in his mind, he cannot understand this. He cannot grasp it. This is not right. This should not happen. And so Jesus gets to Peter and he cannot bear the thought of Jesus washing his feet. For, for all of his verbal faults, Peter loves the Lord. Peter is a passionate man in the Gospels, and he can't bear the thought of Jesus washing his feet. It is too humiliating for his Savior. And so Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? Do you wash my feet? And so Jesus continues to show his love and his patience and his grace in the third thing that he does, he teaches. Jesus is teaching. It's our third aspect of this passage. He begins to patiently instruct Peter. And he, be, he says to Peter, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So this is a, a gentle, open invitation for Peter to stop talking. Be quiet and trust, because for now your view is tainted by ignorance. He's not being mean when he says that. He's saying, Peter, you, you, don't, you don't get this yet. So let me do what needs to be done. This is right. You'll you'll understand later and it will be beautiful and you'll have a clearer picture of what a servant leader looks like and how you ought to treat the church. You don't get it now, but you will. But Peter is not dissuaded. The The gentle admonition from his Lord is not taken as it ought to be. And so Peter continues and he says, Well, you shall never wash my feet. It's candid. It's well-motivated. But he's ignorant of Jesus' course, of what Jesus ought to do. I would submit that it's hard for a proud person to do humble acts. But it's probably far more difficult for a proud person to humbly engage and explain something to an ignorant person who insists on talking. We may have felt this in our own lives, right? It's probably easier for us to do something that's humbling, something that we consider uh, maybe beneath us. We ought not to do that, but there are things that we, if we do them, we we are humble. We are humbled to do them. There's those tasks that it takes humility to do it's probably a lot harder for us to humbly, graciously speak to someone and teach someone who is ignorant and verbose. They are talking a lot and they just don't know. It's a lot easier for us in those moments to want to hit them over the head with our, our response. But our Lord is showing humility to the core. Words and actions overflowing from His heart that loves Peter and His humble heart. And so Jesus gives Peter and the disciples a glimpse of the understanding that they lack. And he says, I must wash you. And he's not speaking of the physical washing. He's going beyond that. He's saying, I must wash you because that is the only way that you will be redeemed. That is the only way that you will be clean of your sins. He is clearly speaking beyond the immediate. He says this. He is the suffering servant who came to give His life as a ransom for many. And the only way that we receive eternal life and repentance and faith and forgiveness is if Christ washes us by going to the cross. Because what He is doing here in this room is a foreshadowing of what He is going to do in the next day. Right? He is going to get down into the muck and the mire of the sins of His people, and He is going to wash it. He is going to clean it. He is going to cleanse our wretchedness from us. And it is going to be gone forever. This act of washing dirty feet was nothing compared to what He was about to do. He was about to go to the full extent of cleansing filth humbling Himself to the point of death. And that is where complete cleansing was going to take place. That's our full bath, as it were. And so He gives Peter and the disciples a glimpse of that. And He says, this right here is a picture of that. This is what I need to do to show you what is coming. To show you what it means to lead like a servant. Once we have been redeemed... Because Peter points this out. He says, well, if you're going to wash my feet, then, then go go more. I want all of it then. And Jesus says, that that's not the picture, Peter. But, but rather, once you have been redeemed, you are completely clean, and now you start to live a life of repentance and continued faith. Not that you are going to be cleansed all over again. Not that your sins need to be paid for again on the cross. But rather, you need to continually come to Christ for a foot washing as it were to come in repentance on a on a daily basis to come when we know that we have sinned against our lord and just to be renewed in his forgiveness and that's the picture that Jesus gives here and that is our continual way of life in this world we we walk through this world are we redeemed as christians yes do we still get dirty in this world yes Do we still pick up some of the sin and the disgustingness of this world as we walk through it? Yes, we do. And so we come to our Savior in repentance and forgiveness and He continues, continues to wash our feet, even now. That's a concept. We are continuing to be served today by our Savior. He is glorious. He is beautiful. Jesus finishes and he sits down and he says, do you understand? And he continues to teach. He says, I've given you an example. And if you circle back to the shock and the astonishment of the disciples, and then he says, this is what you're supposed to do. Hopefully that hit home to them. If not at this moment, it certainly did later on. As you hear them writing in the, in the epistles about how leaders are to serve. Peter writes about not lording it over the flock, but rather leading humbly. He learned that from his Savior. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Jesus is not their servant in an intrinsic sense. He sits down and he says, you call me teacher and Lord and you are right. That's who I am. I am your Lord. I am the one you ought to worship. I'm the one you ought to look up to, follow, learn from. That is appropriate. But all the more reason for us to serve in a loving, gracious, humble, faithful way. Because our Lord, the one that we look up to, is the one who stooped. And so it would be incredulous for us to ever say, I will not stoop to serve someone else when our Lord has stooped far more than any of us ever could. And so the bar has been set incredibly low. Not that it is easy to jump over, but rather we must go under it. And our pride, if we have pride, we will not be able to get under that bar that Christ has set. The bar is very low. We must be humble to go that low and follow our Savior. But he says, this is the call. Do as I have done to you. And certainly, the the practical applications are numerous. But our focus is our Lord this morning. As we consider this passage, as we look toward Easter, we remember a few things. We remember the glorious gospel that exalts our great Savior. Jesus, again, is giving us a picture of what he was about to do. He was about to stoop to the lowest of low and wash completely your sins away. Completely cleanse every thought, every action, every failure. The two great commandments are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And also to love your neighbor as yourself. At any point, if you have failed to do either of those two things, you have become dirty. You have added sin to your record. You have covered yourself in filth, as it were, as we look at this passage and apply that, apply that picture. All of the good things that we can do are are tainted by the sinfulness that causes us to do good things without a, a heart that is fully committed to the Lord, that fully loves the Lord. I, I can love God faithfully and well and yet not perfectly. And I would dare to say that is the majority of my life. Or, or even if I look good. And, and, and growing up in a Christian home and learning many good things from my parents, it's easy to do things well. But to have that heart that is 100% all in for the Lord and for His glory and not for some other selfish reason? Now we're talking about things that Jesus can do. And things that I am, it is impossible for me to do outside of him. And so my life is riddled with sin. He stooped to all of that and cleansed it completely. And he still, today, applies that forgiveness to us as we continue to get dirty in this world, as we continue to sin. And so we remember the glorious gospel as we see it displayed in this picture. Secondly, we rejoice that His righteousness is ours. This is something that we, we probably need to think about more as we read through the Gospels. We so often focus on the forgiveness of our sins, but, and that's good. But the acts of Christ, the things that He did here, they are part of a righteous, perfect life that never failed, that never faltered, that never sinned. And that record, that spotless, stainless, perfect record, is given to his people. Applied to your account. So when God the Father looks at you, that's what he sees. His righteousness is ours. We see in a passage like this, if we we applied this passage in a way that was convicting and challenging, we'd have a lot to talk about, and it would remind us of how far short we fall. But joy ought to overflow out of us when we realize that this righteous life is applied to our account. And we are covered in the righteousness of this servant king. We're going to sing some worship songs here in a moment. And one of them has a verse that I want to close with. Because this also brings us to the point of worship. And I I love the idea of, of singing praises to the king after we focus on him. So as we worship with the saints that have gone before us, we worship this Savior. And one of the lyrics in the, in the song says, And who am I that I should know this treasure of such worth? My Savior's pure atoning blood shed for the wrath I'd earned. For sin has stained my every deed, my every word and thought. What wondrous love that makes me one Your precious, priceless blood has bought. So let's sing.
1: I'm to be... A foot washer in heaven than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Thank you, brother. What a what a good message that was. I'd like to, before I read the portion, I, um, I had a few excerpts to read very briefly, and uh, this is a a simple passage, but yet so profound, and. I think I would do the word of God justice by just reading the passage and sitting down. One of the... Mr. Spurgeon writes this, I do not come into this pulpit hoping that perhaps somebody will of his own free will return to Christ. My hope Lies in another quarter. I hope that my master will lay hold of some of them and say, You are mine and you shall be mine. I claim you for myself. My hope arises from the freeness of grace and not from the freedom of will. That really, that really was powerful. Powerful. Praise God for these men and women that went before us in the faith. We have such a blessed opportunity to read their writings. Before my, before my passage that I want to read, I, I just want to read a verse or two to kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're going up as so would speak. <laughs> Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. is like a flint. Nothing was going to distract him at this point. And he says to his disciples, I call this passage, the Eight Shalls. He says to his disciples, we go up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes. They shall condemn him to death. They shall deliver him to the Gentiles. They shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. But it doesn't stop there. In the third day, he shall rise again. We've read that many times, portions like that. But then we read this. He taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed. He shall rise the third day. This verse right here, but they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. How is that possible? All this time, the Lord had been laboring with them, teaching them, pointing before them, I'm going to, I must die, a prophet cannot die outside of Jerusalem. And yet, they understood not, and they were afraid to ask him, now in the portion that I was given to read in John chapter 12, I'll look at that. It says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Um, there's a parallel passage in Mark's gospel, and I always commend it to you that if you ever read the gospels, this isn't anything new, but I, I can't, I can't m- more recommend this to you you notice a lot of the Gospels have the same story in them, the same account. Oh, please, when you read those accounts, I'm serious about it. When you read what John says, and then read it in Luke or Matthew or Mark, and you'll always, the Spirit of God, you'll always catch a different word, a different phrase, a different nuance that just opens up windows of blessings to you. You know, you know what I'm saying? I don't, I'm sure you, many of you have noticed that, but I can't, I can't commend that enough to you to compare what the um, different gospel writers say, because Mark brings out that they were in the house of Simon the leper, and he sat at meat. Now, they're at the table. I'm, 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 I'm assuming that this Simon the leper was a cleansed leper, a cleansed man. I don't think they would have sat there at a Passover supper with with a, a, a leprous person. I'm assuming that this man was cleansed, was healed by Jesus. We have him sitting at the table. We have Lazarus, who was dead, sitting at the table. We... By the grace of God, we'll be sitting at the table today as we speak in a few minutes. And trust me, I won't be long. What brings you to the table today? What, what were you cleansed of? What healed you? What did you, were you blind? Were you leprous? Were you dead in trespasses and sins? What brought us to this table? Where they're, they're, they're sitting, they're reclining. How would you, how would, can you imagine the hearts of these individuals that have been raised from the dead or a leprous man that was cleansed, the, 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 the love and affection for their blessed master that healed them? Let's never take that for granted. They came and I, I'm sure they were, they were, <laughs> Tremendously encouraged to be there and to honor and bless the one who so blessed them. And um, getting back to our portion, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, not only Costly, very costly, very. And anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. Let's close your eyes, if you will, just for a moment, the, the, the eyes of your mind. Just, 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 just try to imagine what the, what the most precious thing to you in, is in this world just to close your eyes and just I'm almost taking like a clump I was talking to the sisters I just reminded him I'm almost taking a clump of lavender and putting it right up to my face and just just filling my lungs with the fragrant aroma of that herb whatever it might be for you just dwell upon that and think about that but you know And here we go again. I'm going to go back to Mark, where Mary is there. And and it says that she came having an alabaster box of ointment, of spikenard, very precious. And she break the box and poured it on his head. She broke the box and poured it on his head. Why, why do you suppose? Any thoughts? Why do you suppose she broke the box? Why couldn't she just take an, open the box? And I like to think now... John says that she anointed his feet, and I'm sure that's perhaps what happened. I believe that she broke that box, anointed his head, and all that perfume, that ointment, flowed. It's almost like it flowed down Aaron's beard, down his garments, and right down to his feet. And it says that she wiped... His feet with the hairs of her head. I'm going to say something that may sound a little provocative. I I would venture to guess that if our blessed Lord walked down this aisle during our service right now, I would have to suppose that every sister here that knows him would fall at his feet. I don't know if any brothers would. I know it sounds a little strong, but... Many times, a few times you find in the Gospels, men falling at the feet of Jesus. I think, I'm I'm not throwing this out there as a, I don't want people to take it the wrong way. I I, I think this church has some of the finest, godliest sisters that I've, I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. I'm talking solid, godly. Christ-honoring, sisters, and every single one of you has a gift. Has a gift. Now this, this, I'm sure Mary didn't do this out of a sense of duty. I'm sure she didn't think about this for days and days. I think this was a response of the love in her heart to want to do something for Jesus, do something specifically, only for him. And she broke the box, never to be used again. That one time was for him. He was laid in a grave where no man ever laid. The love that Joseph of Arimathea had, that craved the body of Jesus. The love. You see it sometimes throughout the the scriptures. The love David had for the Lord, even when the Lord told David he could not build him the temple where he might dwell. So in turn, David stockpiled all kind of precious goods and and substance and everything that Solomon used to build that temple out of love for the Lord. Jonathan loved David like he loved his own soul. And in appreciation for David... Jonathan basically stripped himself of everything that he had and gave it to David out of love for David. We have a chance today, each and every one of us, to break the alabaster box. Think of those fragrant aroma. Think when Noah offered up a sacrifice and a sweet savor that ascended to God. Think when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with his hands full of incense and put it on the burning coals. Think of that cloud that ascended above the mercy seat. The fragrant, That, that, that perfume was only for the Lord. It was not meant to be used on anything or anybody else. The woman that, that, that stood behind Christ and, and wept and wiped his feet with the hairs of her head. I can see. I can see every sister here doing that. I can't see many brothers doing that. And there's that no reflection, brothers, on you. I think sisters have that sort of. I don't even know what the right word. In, 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 in inhibited. Yes. They're not afraid to show their affections for Christ. Never mind what somebody else might say. Now, you know, I'm not sticking up for Judas here, because it says Judas is the one that spoke up. I think Judas might have probably most likely been the spokesman, but it says they all, or most, or they all murmured. I don't think Mary asked their permission first. hey, hey, Peter, do you think it would be a good idea if I went? She did it out of love. She acted on an impulse. She didn't weigh the, oh, should I, or should I not? or You know, maybe someone else will do it. I'll, I'll just wait and see it. How many times in our service for the Lord do we do that? Ah, should I go visit that? Nah, yeah, you know, I don't know. Is it my duty or is it not my duty? Uh, You know, maybe someone else will do it. You know, I'll, I'll just leave it up. to. If the Spirit of God, I believe, now correct me if I'm wrong, if the Spirit of God has given you a desire for anything for the Lord, do it. Do it. You know, I try to call a few saints from time to time, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to call, I'm going to really encourage him in the Lord. Guess what happens? I'm the one that gets encouraged. I'm the one often that ends up the phone with a tear in my eye because, you know, the brother or the sister will cut through the, hey, how you doing? Everybody's fine, you know, to say, hey, how are you? We're all fine. No, we're not all fine. We're not. But to to admit that to somebody is, we're leaving ourselves vulnerable. So if the Lord has put something on your heart, do it. Do it for him. Just for him. Never mind what, oh, what does she, who does she think, what is he doing? Who do they, do it for the Lord. Now, I've read a few scholars, not many, I'm not like a, the most, You know, looking at, I don't even, I can't even get up here with notes. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing anyone that does it with notes. Brothers, I don't know how you do it. I'm serious. Or or tablets and re- I marvel at the, I don't have that gift. Now some commentators, or all, I even think Mr. Spurgeon thinks so too. That Mary, as the Lord goes on to say, you know, when 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 they all murmur, you know, this this might have been stolen for three hundred bucks and given to the poor. Really? Really? And what did the what did the Lord say? Leave her alone. She did a good thing on me. Leave her alone. But when he when he says she had done what she could she is come afore to anoint my body to the burying. Did she know ahead of time? Did she know something that the disciples did not know? Which, oh, we read, right? The disciples didn't know this saying was hid from them. Nobody that I've read on the outside says, nah, she couldn't have known. It was just one of those spontaneous Things of devotion, out of love. But then, you know, when I read in, in, in Luke, you know, how um, about Mary and Martha, and Martha being cumbered about serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her that, that she, she come and help me. Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. One thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good thing, because it says previous to that, uh, Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Heard his word. I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into it. I, I, I think Mary knew that Jesus was going to die. She heard His Word. And she came and anointed the body. How about that scene? You know, brother, you spoke about that scene, about being with the disciples and Jesus washing their feet. Getting down on his knees with smelly, disgusting feet, and washing between the toes, so to speak. The disgusting, the humility, the humbleness—that that, that it—it just—it's so simple. You read it, but yet it's so profound. But in in, in closing, I, I I don't I have one verse for you, sisters. I got one verse for you that really hit, stuck out in this when jesus said when when, uh, when jesus said she hath done what she could sister she did what she could she hath done what she could No more, no less, but it was, like Jesus said, for me. She did it for me. In closing, I I just want to read one one excerpt. You know, I I even asked my dear wife, I said, do you think this is too strong? I don't want anyone... I'm serious. I don't want anyone getting mad at me. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. I'm not putting you under a microscope and examining what, what you're doing or what you're not doing for the Lord. Seriously. I can read this portion, and I'm, 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 I'm like this, okay? I'm feeling the dagger of the Spirit of God. Imagine your Savior who has bought you with his blood standing in this pulpit for a moment. He lifts up his hands, once rent with nails. He exposes to you his side, pierced with a spear. Now picture him. Lose sight of me for a moment and see him. And he puts to each one of you the question, I suffered all this for thee. What hast thou ever done for me? Answer him now. Like honest followers of the Lamb of God, look back and see... What you have ever done? You have gone up, you say, to his house. Was that not for your own profit? Did you do it for him? You have contributed to his cause. Ah, you have, and some of you have done well in this thing. But think how much have you given in proportion to what Christ has given to you. What have you ever done for Christ? Well, you have perhaps some years ago taught children for him in Sunday school. But it's all over. And you have not been a Sunday school teacher these last many years. Jesus asks, what have you done for me? In three years, he says, I wrought out your redemption. In three years of agony, of toil, of suffering, I brought, I bought you with my blood. What have you ever done for me in these ten, twenty, thirty years? Since you knew my love and tasted of my power to save. Cover your faces, my friends. Cover your faces. Let each man among us do so. Let us blush and weep. Lord Jesus, there was never such a friend as thou art. But never were there such unfriendly ones as we are. Christ has some of the most ungrateful followers that man ever had. We have done little. If we have done much, we have done little. But some of you have done nothing at all for Christ. That's hard. That's a hard saying. That's a hard saying.